Happy New Year and welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And uh, we are not only wishing you a Happy New Year, but we are continuing through a series uh, that has looked at important figures and some biblical stories and church history figures uh, that have come up in this Advent and Christmas season. Um, Our apologies, but not exactly sorry kind of apologies, our acknowledgement that last week, uh, as we talked about the differences between Santa and God... That may have been uh, a challenging conversation, but I think an important one that's about getting at what's real. And I think today's conversation is also about getting at what's real, even if it's not always easy, right? Where are we headed today, Sarah? So today we're looking at a couple of texts that happen, like, during Christmas tide in the church. And these are texts that we don't often get to hear because um, pastors are usually really tired the week after Christmas. <laughs> There's certainly like re- a reality like at this at this point it's pastors are tired or are away or on vacation. Yeah, so typically what happens on the Sunday after Christmas, Christmas one, if you will, in the church year, um, is we have hymn sings <laughs> <laughs> instead of looking at these texts. And so today we're going to look at three stories in the Bible. Um, The first is the presentation of Jesus at the temple when he's eight days old. Um, The second is the martyrdom of the holy innocents, where three years after Jesus was born or so, um, this happens around Epiphany, that um, Herod is in his looking for Jesus, murders a bunch of baby boys. And then the third is the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Um, So these are all kind of gruesome Tales. So our apologies again that this is probably going to be another downer. <laughs> but again, I think worth it to hear these stories that are in the Bible and are there for a reason. Yeah. Um, and we just often don't hear in church because singing Christmas carols is more fun. Well, and I think, like, as, as you mentioned it, I, I think there's deep good news to be heard in all these. Mm-hmm. And that it really, at, at core, is about a God who goes into all the messiness of what it is to be in this messy violent, difficult, sad world, not just the God who comes and visits when there's snow on the ground and there's hot cocoa and there's presents to be open. Like, that's easy. Any any made-up God can do that. Uh, but it takes uh, it takes a real God to be vulnerable to be a refugee in Egypt. <clears throat> it takes a real God who's willing to show up in a guy getting stoned to death. It sh- I mean, like, there's, there's something powerful at the heart of what makes the good news good is a God who doesn't just show up on the happy days but in difficult moments. There, there's a, a song lyric that's been in my head lately um, from uh, Stephen Sondheim's musical Into the Woods, which is sort of a, a fractured fairy tale kind of a musical. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in one of the songs where the, the one character says, nice is different than good. Um, and there's something important about that, that we are really good at settling for nice, and we are really good at the, uh, the fake small talk is the fake smiles, the hi, how are you, everything's fine, everything's good, and, you know, of course your lawn looks lovely when it's covered with a blanket of snow, you can't see any of the imperfections, um, but, um, that good is deeper than that, it's, it's deeper than the surface, it's different than the, the outside wrapping paper covering, um, and that all these stories are about finding God who shows up in the midst of, yeah, deep brokenness, and sometimes really tragic things that people do to each other, um, and that nevertheless, the, the fact that the, the followers of Jesus have found God's presence here, and not just in a lovely snow-covered, uh, idyllic pastoral scene, that says something powerful about our God, that's good, even if it isn't always nice. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we're going to start chronologically with uh, Mm -hmm. Jesus is eight days old. What happens? So, as Jewish custom dictates, 
when a baby Jewish boy is eight days old, he is taken to the temple, he is named, and he is circumcised. And part of that goes, I mean, like the, the commandments that go way, way back, even into the Torah of at eight days old, you'll present your children, your firstborn to me. And it's sort of like this, the, the, the uh, Torah even connects it back to the, the Passover story of, you know, I saved your, fast, your firstborn in the Passover, I delivered you. You know, you are to remember that story every time there's a firstborn to remember, I saved you, I saved you, I saved you. Mm-hmm. So it, there, it's not like a sense of, like, that that uh, God is some bloodthirsty, like, I, I own your children, you must buy them back for me with blood sacrifice. It's more, remember I saved you, and remember that because I saved that first generation in Egypt, every generation afterwards that exists is because of that act of grace that sort of continues to ripple out, that act of salvation. Um, so even this idea of presenting your firstborn isn't meant to be heard as sort of like a cosmic bargain of they have to go offer sacrifice to buy their kid back from God or something like that, like the Rumpelstiltskin story or something. Um, so, okay, they, Mary and Joseph, as Luke tells the story, and we're, we're in late chapter 2 of Luke, right, if people want to yep. follow along? Yep, we're, it's starting in verse 22. Okay. So Luke 2, 22. And what happens from there? They show up at the temple and what? Well, they offer their sacrifice uh, as part of the law of mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Um, they offer two pigeons because they're a poor family. That's a cool note, right? So, like, yes. like that, that's the, what, 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 what do you mean, like, because they offer two pigeons because they're, they're poor? So, there, there are different levels of sacrifices for different uh, customs in Jewish culture. There's and, tax brackets. Yeah, there's tax brackets, basically. And because Mary and Joseph are poor... Um, they can't afford what, and I'm not even sure what... I think it's a lamb. I think it's a whole lamb. Yeah, it would probably be a lamb. Uh, but Jewish law, God in Jewish law recognizes that not everybody can afford a lamb for mm-hmm. for every firstborn child that is, you know, firstborn son that has been born. And so he makes allowances for people that cannot afford a lamb to be able to afford something less expensive. Right. Now, like, the thing that's cool to me is when the story unfolds in Luke, Luke just sort of, like, subtly, casually just mentions this, but, like, the implication is important, that God hasn't just come for or to the upper middle class people or the the wealthy country club set, but that God shows up for everybody and chooses to be born and raised in this family that can't even meet the basic sacrifice has to go to the the poverty level to pigeons, to pigeons or turtle doves, which is where that imagery of turtle doves comes from in that other song. Um, So they offer the sacrifice uh, as commanded. Mm -hmm. And then as they're in the temple, they run across two people. Okay. One's Simeon and one is Anna. Um, Both, uh, well, Anna's, uh, I believe, if I'm... I'm trying to see it in here. It's called a prophetess. Mm -hmm. She's called a prophet. She was older. Um, She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then she was a widow. Um, And she's now 84. Mm -hmm. So she was married for seven years, and now she's been a widow for much longer. And she's been living in the temple, I believe, since then. Yeah. Fasting and praying and etc. And Simeon is not necessarily called a prophet, but also just somebody who has lived in the temple is very faithful... Jewish person, um, Jewish man, and they both come across this new couple and their new baby, who look like any other couple and baby. Right. I mean, you know, there's no glowing, there's no halo. Right, so despite nothing. all the Christmas cards and religious paintings, yeah. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus don't walk around with gold circles around their heads. Yeah, Mary was probably really tired, right. Joseph probably <laughs> looked slightly twitchy and stressed out. And, um, and Simeon starts, he... he he comes up to the child. He recognizes the child as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a sidebar that Luke gives that somehow the Holy Spirit has told him yes. he won't die until he's seen God's Savior, the promised Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
this this moment has finally come for mm-hmm. Xavier. He's been waiting all you know as, as, for as long as the spirit has told him this. He's been waiting for this moment, and um, he takes the child in his arms and he says, "Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." Um, and then he goes on. You know, he blesses Mary and Joseph. And he says to Mary, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So ominous kind of words, right? I mean, like yeah. this is this is a, a weird story in that it's I mean, you have to figure that it's supposed to be a happy, joyful occasion in uh, Second Temple Judaism in the first century. Hooray, we have a baby. Hooray, the baby's going to the temple. Hooray, we're naming the baby. Um, we're dedicating the baby to God. You know, all these things are happening. It's supposed to be this nice, happy moment. And there's a sort of shadow of ominousness as Simeon not only gets this baby's important, but even the blessing he speaks has this sort of air of there. there's a there's a shadow side, that there's going to be pain for Mary in, in particular. And, she, and he sort of says it like a sword will also pierce your heart almost with like this acknowledgement of the kid's in trouble too, right? That Like Jesus is headed toward a cross too. Yeah. And definitely, um, you know, for, for me, anytime I... I don't preach on this often because I like him saying <laughs> or Wesley Covenant services because you know that's what we do in my denomination. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely pointing. We see um, almost prophetically that that pointing to the cross yeah. and the fact that Mary is at the foot of the cross with Jesus thirty three years later, just sobbing because her heart is broken. I mean, this right. is her firstborn. Right, right, right. Um, this is her baby. This is the Son of God who came to save Israel, and now he's dying. Yeah, and. Now she has to deal with the death of her child, which is something no parent should ever have to deal with. Yeah. And, like, there's this reminder that not only is all parenthood fraught with the suffering of it hurts to see your kid hurt in any, like, and, and that's yeah. what that's the deal is to be any parent in any, any kind. Sometimes your kid's going to hurt and you can't fix it, you can't make it better. Even more so for Mary and, and her child, Jesus, because. Luke knows the story and is like, this story from beginning is headed to a cross. And I think that's an important piece is that, again, it, nobody nobody likes to talk about it because we like the cheeriness and the innocence of a baby at Christmas. But as all four of the gospel writers want to make clear, like, the story of Jesus is all about God entering into human suffering. And that means that the cross is not like some accidental detour where things go awry, but that, like, God chooses from the be- from the beginning. This will be about entering into human suffering, even going to death, even the heartbrokenness of a cross, and that there's no sense of um, well, God was hoping it would turn out great, and it could just be happy, fun, innocent baby time, and then it turns back. No, from the beginning, there's this shadow of a cross at the beginning of the story. Um, the other thing that's weird, other than like one more time someone has broken out into song in Luke's gospel, which happens the first couple of chapters, um, then uh, Anna also has things she says. We don't get as long a, a piece, but she also sort of indicates, like she sort of confirms what Simeon says, right? Yeah, she doesn't actually <clears throat> speak. Get speaking like lines. we don't get um, <laughs> we don't get any quotation marks for her. But um, she, like I said, she was older. She had been living in the temple um, and worshipped there with fasting and prayer day and night. Um, and at that moment, so presumably after Simeon has stopped talking, um, she came and she began to praise God and to speak about Jesus um, to all who came looking for redemption in, uh, for Jerusalem. So there is this important moment here, and like later Luke will give a sort of summary, and Mary treasured all these things, and like sort of like she didn't know what to do with all these memories. She's like, I bet this will be important later. Um, 
But so there's this like from the beginning, mm-hmm. the, there there's there's no way for Jesus to be the Messiah without entering into human suffering. There's there's no there is no Christ without a cross. And then honestly, to understand Christmas rightly is to say that this heads towards God's entering into suffering with us in all the all the way down into our grief, our hurt, our heartache, and and even to death on a cross. Um, that again, we're not great at that as a culture, and we tend to be like. You know, let's just focus on the happy child part, but like, but that loses that that settles for nice instead of good. And this is one of those stories that reminds us, even from the beginning, like the moment the angels have gone up into heaven, the shepherds are back in their flocks. There's this reminder that the 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 baby's story doesn't end in a manger, but like this this goes on to the one who spends his time with the outcasts and the nobodies and goes to a cross for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that sort of sets up the next scene then. Um, baby Jesus is not out of the woods even after his uh, presentation in the temple. Things get difficult, but we're going to flip to a, a different gospel, right? Because the story of what yeah. happens uh, to Jesus uh, and the, the babies in Bethlehem happens in, in Matthew's gospel, right? Mm-hmm. I believe so, yeah. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 2. And again, this is one of those n- moments to remember even though all of our nativity sets have all the action figures all in one, uh, the shepherds and angels part of the action figure playset comes from Luke's telling of the story. And when Matthew tells the birth of Jesus, there's there's nary a shepherd there, and there's one or two angels, most of whom show up in dreams. But there's these exciting magi bonus action figures. They've been following a some some kind of sign in the sky, uh, and they go to Jerusalem, the capital uh, of the Roman province, and assume the new king is going to be born there. When they see a star in the sky, that they think indicates uh, a new king has been born. Uh, the the king who's in residence, the puppet king, Herod, says, uh, hold on, let me check with my experts on this. The experts go, Bethlehem is where you should go. And they find the child in Bethlehem. And then what happens from there? So after they find the child in Bethlehem, um, they go back to Herod. And well, Don't they avoid Herod? They avoid Herod. Herod wants them to go back. Sorry, yeah. I misspoke. Herod wants them to come back to them. But again, one of those angels that usually appears in dreams appears to them and tells them to go a different route. Standard dream angel, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so Herod realizes that he's been tricked. You know, like these wise men had come looking for a king. Mm-hmm. He sent them out to Bethlehem. Apparently they found the king, never returned to him. And so uh, an angel appears to the wise men, tell them to go a different direction. The angel appears to Joseph. Again, all these angels appearing in dreams yeah. and telling him, dude, you need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. You need to leave because Herod is after your son. He mm-hmm. knows that he's been born, and he knows there's another king, and Herod doesn't like anybody competing with his power. He's been known to kill his own family members, including his own children. Mm-hmm. So clearly, he's going to have no scruples about killing this random kid. And right. Ran- random, like, three-year-old. No, there's yeah, no yeah, problem. No. When he kills his own adult children, uh, no problem with that. So uh, Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus off to Egypt, and then Herod, because he is so angry decides to put it forth an edict saying that all children under the age of two or three, um, whatever age it was that the wife yeah, all had, about Jesus' age. Yeah, yeah, all about Jesus' age. In Bethlehem, all the baby boys need to die in hopes of killing... This new right, trying to get rid of this usurper, yeah. yeah. And so, like, a couple of side notes that, like, again, we're used to putting all the figures in our nativity set all at once, but the way Matthew plays the story out... Um, Herod decides to kill all the babies two and under in Bethlehem according to the timing he's learned from the Magi, which means that it could well be years later that the Magi finally arrive. Then Matthew even sort of gives a nod and says they find the, the child, child, not infant now, in a house somewhere. So again, like, in our, in our mind, we sort of picture it was a way, one very long Christmas Eve, and first in came the shepherds, and that same night, Jesus still in the manger, in come the Magi, and that's how our nativity sets work, but that's not how the Bible tells the story. It's shepherds and angels, and another gospel writer gives us a story about Magi, 
showing up, and um, it's sort of a, a different purpose of the of, of the story uh, that that here are these weird outsiders, these absolutely Gentile, non-Jewish astrologers. I mean, like, there's how many counts against these guys? Uh, Even though we sort of um, make them nobler into kings in that famous song, We Three Kings, the word king doesn't show up in in the story. They're astrologers. The word magi is the same word we get the word magician from. These are guys who practice magic. That, that's taboo in, in uh, good, good, proper, uh, Torah-abiding uh, Second Temple Judaism. You don't practice magic. You're not supposed to look for meaning in the stars or whatever. They're doing all this stuff, and, and they're Gentile. They're Goyim, and yet they've come, uh, and Matthew's sort of given this wink of, like, this child isn't just for Israel. This child is now for all people, and that's a tension for Matthew, but, like, he's sort of, like, laying this out for us at the beginning, um, and so the, the, the Magi themselves are, are curious characters, and that sets an emotion, Jesus needing to himself go off to uh, a foreign nation for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So he's, he, he, he and his, his uh, guardian and his mom go into Egypt. And um, Matthew makes a couple of uh, points about that as well. He sort of sees echoes of um, Israel being the one called out of Egypt as well. He sort of quotes from Hosea, the prophet, who goes, you know, out of Egypt I called my son. And sort of when Hosea says that, he's referencing back the people of Israel who were freed from Egypt and then come out to their own land. And now Matthew's gone, see what what Israel as a nation was supposed to be. Jesus is now embodying all of what God's people were supposed to be. He sees the sort of echo there in the story of Jesus. Um, but so this is dangerous all around. It's dangerous for Jesus and his family who flee seeking refuge. I mean, they're, they're, they're entering another country. They're not citizens of hoping that they will be protected there because the government of their own country is trying to execute Jesus. They have no guarantees that it will be safe from in, in Egypt, but at least it seems better than being in under Herod's jurisdiction. Um, and on top of that, now this is a, a dangerous and bloody mess for all the, the families in Bethlehem too. There seems to be another echo in that murder of all the children in, in uh, Bethlehem that goes back to the Exodus story, too, because Pharaoh mm-hmm. does something similar. Yeah, Pharaoh goes and kills all of the baby boys again. Uh, we had talked about that, I think, a couple months ago. When we talked about the uh, the midwives. Yeah, uh-huh. the midwives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it even, you know, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Again, as, as, as dark and unpleasant as this story is, something that I think is really important in what the gospel writers are trying to do is to say, one, that the world that God enters and saves is not some uh, Pollyanna-ish world where everybody does right and people are nice and kind and no mm-hmm. bad things happen, but that God enters this world with the corruption of Herod and the absolute cowardice and fear of Herod who will do anything to hold on to power and who becomes so absolutely paranoid that he's willing to kill innocent people because he's so afraid of losing his own power um, and who, it, yeah, that, that, like, this is the world that God loves. It, it's not some uh, fake snow-covered, everything's lovely and beautiful world. It's not the the God of the Bette Midler song that God's watching from a distance. I and mean, yeah, from a distance, we look great. That God comes close up uh, and it's, this is the world that God loves. That's an important thing and I, I guess it's, it's also important to me that like this story, because it's Herod doing the exact same move that Pharaoh does, and that, frankly, empire after empire has done in between. You know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were bloodthirsty as well toward children as well. And that, like, this is sort of the Bible exposing, this is what the way of empire does. I mean, the, the letterhead changes, whether it's Herod or Rome or Babylon or Egypt or whomever. That's the way 
the the thinking of empire and the sort of love of power for power's sake does things. It, it's it's for all of the the ways we think of uh, empires as being innovative and powerful, they're really one trick ponies. It's just you know how, how how can I use fear to threaten and make people afraid? And God enters into that world and doesn't play by that game. That God's response is not so God sent down an angel army to kill Herod. No, that God's response is to be vulnerable. That's scandalous because like our our impulse is to say no no no. When does God send in the angel army to stop this bad thing from happening? And God doesn't stop the, the this bad thing from happening. God enters into it, and that's part of how God loves and saves the world, is to enter into the suffering and in, entering into the mess instead of just fixing it the way we would want to fix it. Well, get out an angel army and stop this bad thing from happening. Mm-hmm. We talked a week ago when we were talking about the dangers of sort of Santa theology, about how sometimes we have this sort of, well, here's how I would fix the problem, God. Would you please cure so-and-so of their cancer? Why don't you do it my way, God? And when that doesn't happen, sometimes we're either left at a point of doubt of, well, maybe God isn't real, or we're left at this point of anger of how come he didn't do it my way? And God consistently um, is willing to take our anger and bad press. You know, that even when we go, God, you're not doing a very good job of being God because you wouldn't fix this my way, that God doesn't play by the games of empire. God doesn't just use an angel army to, to smash things, but enters into our brokenness and suffers with us. That's tough for God, and God has to take all of our anger and we're complaining that God's not doing a very good job being divine uh, for not doing it my way. So um, that leads us then to one final story uh, that is commemorated or remembered in this week uh, between Christmas and New Year. Uh, it's the story and the, the the life story of a guy named Stephen, who I'm particularly fond of. Uh, what, what, really? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good sturdy I name. wonder why. Yeah. So, well, uh, is someone willing to uh, help us locate where we're going in the Bible? Um, yeah, so, this, so Stephen can be found in the book of Acts. Because um, this Acts is, you know, the book about the early church getting off the ground after Jesus has died, been resurrected, and ascended again. Um, so, a lot of Stephen's story, I believe, is in chapter six and seven. Mm-hmm. Um, because he is arrested, he speaks to church council, and then eventually dies. Yep. And they pick up rocks and kill him because they don't want to go what he has to say. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, he, he's, he's the first person named in the book of Acts as someone who dies because of his faith in Jesus. And there's a couple of points at which his laying down his life is meant, I think, to echo the way Jesus dies in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. So Luke is the guy who writes Acts and, and the guy who writes Luke, uh, to the best of our knowledge. Um, and interestingly, um, even though all the different gospel writers have different last words on Jesus' lips, the last things that they have Jesus saying, in Mark, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew does the same thing there. Um, John gives us the, it is finished. And um, we get two things that Jesus says only in Luke's gospel that they recorded where he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, and into your hands I commend my spirit. And as they're stoning Stephen to death, um, Luke the narrator stops and notes two things that he says as he's dying, and they are, while they're throwing rocks at him, Lord, don't hold this sin against them, and uh, he sees this vision of God, and there's Jesus standing, like applauding for him, like, way to go, guy, Um, standing, uh, and he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. These are meant to be deliberate echoes, that the way Jesus lives and dies is going to be followed up and embodied in the way Jesus' followers live and die, and the same way there's hope that Jesus isn't contained by death, 
death that Stephen also, and again, not just Stephen, but this is meant to be sort of a model of like, all of us have this hope that there's life beyond the power of death. And even when the powers around us do their worst and do what angry mobs do and try and kill and lynch this guy, um, that there's, there's, there's power uh, and there's life beyond death there. It's, it's, again, it's an unpleasant story in one sense, but to me it's a deeply hopeful one, um, not just because Stephen, as he's dying, has this hope of being reunited with Jesus and seeing, I'll, I'll get to be with Jesus, um, but there's this sense of this is the way followers of Jesus are victorious, that at no point does uh, Stephen say, well, what I really need to do is get my sword out and I'll fight you guys off, but his way of, of being a witness in the midst of this is to embody what Jesus is like. So he lays down his life there. Okay, you can be throwing rocks at me and I'm I'm not going to fight you back. I'm not going to do that in return. I'm not going to return evil for evil. But my way of showing you what the way of Jesus is like is to live the way Jesus did, even to die the way Jesus did. Um, And I think that gets it. What we've been trying to highlight throughout this whole episode is that the Christian faith is uh, about a God who goes even in the dark places, even into death, and isn't afraid and doesn't go, oh, that's uncomfortable, I'm sorry, zipping up to heaven, um, but is willing to go through the difficult stuff um, and is going is willing to, to even lay down uh, God's own life. And so that's, that's it, the more followers of Jesus get it, the more our lives are going to look like that, too. Other things that uh, emerge for you that you think we need to highlight about the, the story of Stephen, uh, who's... who's for whatever reason, his uh, story is commemorated in this week. We have no calendar date to know whether it happened in late December or not. Yeah, we, we celebrate Stephen on December 26th. Right. But, um, yeah, no idea. <laughs> but, um, I think another thing to note about Stephen's death is that this is the beginning of Paul's persecution yeah. of the Christian church. Yeah. That, um, that, he, that Paul was there. This was still when he's being called Saul. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's there and um, witnesses laid their coats at his feet for some reason. I don't know if he was just the coat He's keeper. the coat holder. Yeah. Coat yeah. yeah well, well, you all throw stones. I'm going to hold on to all your <laughs> coats. But he's there he, and he's ha- holding on to the coats and the cloaks and um, he's a and, Pharisee, he can't get his hands dirty. Yeah, right. and, the, yeah. and the story ends with, and Saul approved of their killing of him. Mm-hmm. And then it, like, then the next part of Acts is Saul persecutes the church. Yeah. And that this was just the beginning for yeah. Saul of his persecution before, of course, later becoming converted. And Yeah. I, I think, I, I, I don't think it's reading too much into the text. I think the, the way Luke gives us these and... I think invites us to connect these dots. I think this begins something that later becomes really formative for Paul's theology. Is mm-hmm. that like he gives us that Paul isn't just random neutral guy with no particular position on mm-hmm. Jesus, but is deliberately and has a long-standing like ingrained opposition to the followers of Jesus. He's first nodding approval as they're killing, as they're lynching Stephen, and then he carries that out and actively, like it grows. He doesn't just sort of the the, the non-committal bystander forever. He's he, That's where he starts. He's a non-committal bystander holding coats, approving, nodding, and then he becomes complicit as he actively persecutes and, and brings uh, Christians to be bound and presumably tortured or killed or whatever. And it's in the midst of that that God reaches out to him, uh, that Jesus appears to him. And the thing that I think becomes so important for Paul's theology and because Christians tend to be New Testament people who think that the weight of such people is important, that this becomes a a New Testament and Christian thing, uh, is that God doesn't wait for Paul to sign up to be on Jesus' team. God 
invites Paul to the dance. I mean, God's the one who takes the first step. And while you are actively turned away from me, I will reach out to you and grab hold of you. And Paul later gets that when he writes to Romans and goes like, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies of God, God uh, interceded on our behalf and, and claimed us and saved us and turned us back to him. That it's always God who's the one pulling us out onto the dance floor. Um, and that's only possible because he saw in his own life, oh my goodness, I was the enemy that God loved. Um, and at the heart of the Christian faith is God's ability to love enemies. Um, so that's not just like one random off verse in the Sermon on the Mount that, whew, man, we got through it this time in the lectionary, we don't have to deal with it for another couple of years, I can go back to being a vengeful jerk. <clears throat> At the, you, can't, you can't take two steps in the New Testament without the notion of enemy love, not only our love for our enemies, but because at the core it's about God's love for a world that is dead set against God, right? A world that makes no room for God to be born in it, and yet God doesn't say, oh, well, you're not going to make room for me? I, I'm sorry, I'll, I won't impose, but says, I'm coming anyway, I'm crashing the party. <laughs> so um, I hope that in the midst of all these stories, for as dark as they can be, that there's there's glimmers of light in the midst of them as well. Uh, are there are there things that you find yourselves taking with you this year, uh, starting into a new year, from from even stories like these uh, that are, are points to, to to leave the conversation with? I think for me, definitely the faith of um, Simeon, Anna, and Stephen. Mm-hmm. All is something to aspire to. Okay. You know, as we spent Advent looking at the saints and looking at the ways that, um, obviously, we're not going to live exactly the way that they lived. Because yeah. um, of time difference, you know, yeah. and all kinds of other things. There is something to aspire to in the fact that, you know, Anna spent all her time in the temple praying and fasting constantly. She lived there. Simeon was looking for the Messiah. He was so close to God that the Spirit had told him that you will not leave this life until you get to see mm-hmm. the Messiah. And Stephen, willing to lay down his life for his faith mm-hmm. and saying, you know what, I am going to literally take Jesus' words of turn the other cheek and I'm going to let you stone me to death because mm-hmm. I believe in this so strongly or, or aspirations for me to live up to. Because I will tell you, there, there are days <laughs> that I do not have the faith of Anna, Simeon, or Stephen. Yeah. And I think it's, it, you make a good point, that it's, it's, about, it's about strength of faith, but it's not just about intensity. It's about the particular God we believe in. I mean, if you believe really strongly in Zeus and Apollo in the Greek and Roman mythology, you're going to believe real strong in a vengeful, capricious sort of a God. Mm-hmm. But it's the particular weirdness of the God that we believe in, the peculiar God who shows up in the story of Israel and Jesus is this weird God who shows up in mangers and on crosses and um, going uh, seeking refuge in Egypt and all sorts of places that we don't expect a respectable God to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even weak faith in that God is going to look weird, <laughs> at least at least to a watching world. How about you, Sarah? Are there any things that you would have us take with us? Yeah, I think for 2019 this year, um, I hope to treat the entire year as if it's Epiphany. Oh, that I find that as I get older it seems that the world is getting darker Hmm. that which is probably just i'm noticing it it (laughs) but you know i i there just always seems to be bad things in the news whether it's about the climate or political or you know climate change or about the political atmosphere um but that you know treating the year as if it's epiphany all year Mm -hmm. that there is a light in the darkness, and the mm-hmm. darkness cannot overcome it. Yeah. And reminding myself that, yes, this world is dark and sinful, but that's not the end story. That there is still this light of Jesus Christ and God's love for us, and that even in our sin, in our darkness, we are saved. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, I think that's enough, enough light to carry us through for a while, huh? Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, join us for further conversations uh, next time. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year.